Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor and I'm looking for the best home for my cash. If that sounds like you, then I think you're going to like what we do here. Now, today's episode is a little bit different from what I normally do. Long-term viewers know I take a big picture, long-term view at things, and I never put out reactionary or responsive episodes, but that is what I am doing today. For context, it's late at night on Monday, October 9th. So just like you, I've been watching the horrific headlines come out of the Middle East since Saturday morning, and I'm trying to make sense of what's fact, what's fiction, what's real, what's misleading, what do I seem to know thus far, and what do I not know that I still have questions, unanswered questions about. Now, my guest today is a very seasoned boots-on-the-ground journalist named Jonathan Roth. And when I say seasoned boots-on-the-ground, I mean he's found himself in many conflict zones throughout his career, including, for example, being on the ground in Zimbabwe, sitting down face-to-face with the dictator Robert Mugabe. He's been on the Ochoa Cartel's property in Mexico and countless more environments where most journalists would never dare to go. Now, today, I wanted to get his take because his network is, is exponentially better than mine when it comes to understanding the real events on the ground, his connections in government agencies and security agencies, both at home in the United States and in the Middle East, within Israel and outside are really second to none. And so I wanted to get his take today. Normally, I would not have shared this conversation publicly. I would just call him to chat and get some perspective for myself. But I asked him if we could record this, and he graciously graciously accepted. I did my best to handle this material delicately. I did my best to remove my personal emotions from the conversation and just dig at the factual information as best as we might know it as of today, knowing that everything we talk about may change in 24 and likely will 48 hours. Okay, let's get into my interview with journalist Jonathan Roth. Enjoy. Okay, here I am with John Roth. John, thank you so much for making the time late at night. It's good to see you, man. Jay, it's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so immediately when I woke up to this news on Saturday about what was occurring in the Middle East, you're one of the first people I wanted to talk to. So uh, here's what I thought makes the most sense today. You know my style. I like to focus bigger picture, longer term, and not get caught up in the weeds and the the near-term events. Plus, there's a thousand places you can stay up to date on current events. Uh, But to give this conversation justice, I do want to start with what we know thus far. And it's going to break down events as we understand them. So you know, what do we seem to know to be true thus far? And what don't we seem to know yet, right? What are some of the questions that you have thus far, given what you've seen uh, occur in Israel, John? Maybe I'll just point to you and you can take it from there. Well, it's clear that obviously Hamas infiltrated Israel somehow, in southern Israel in particular, from Gaza, uh, went into this music uh, rave concert that was going on early Saturday morning. Um, and uh, and proceeded to massacre as many people as they possibly could. And I think everyone's seen the, the, the footage on Twitter and, and the, the footage that we're seeing on CNN and, and Fox and MSNBC and such that's, uh, that's very censored from what we're seeing online. But it's clear that Hamas somehow, some way, was able to infiltrate one of the most technologically advanced uh, military uh, outpost regions in the world. Uh, there's no there's no country like Israel that has security. I, I, you know, I've only been there once, 
Uh, and, uh, and let's just say that um, my experience there was security conscious to the extreme, uh, which we could get into later on in the, in the conversation. But uh, it's clear from what's going on online and even some uh, Israeli uh, retired in, uh, Israeli intelligence folks that there are a lot of questions about how Hamas was able to get in uh, and the delay in terms of how long it took police and fire and you know military units and such to respond to some of these incidents. In some cases, I heard upwards of 12 hours, which makes no sense. So I think there's a lot of questions about that. Uh, but obviously, they killed a lot of people. They've taken a lot of hostages and the videos are absolutely horrific. And if Hamas wanted any sort of sense of of solidarity from, uh, you know, the average person that doesn't know anything or very little about this conflict, I'm not sure these videos help their cause. So at this point, that's where things are at in the southern part of the country. In the northern part of the country, it's clear now that uh, Hamas or Hezbollah, which is um, a group up in uh, headquartered in Lebanon, they are uh, infiltrating down into Israel um, from the northern part of the country. And Israel has retaliated with artillery strikes and um, air attacks. Um, that seems a little bit foggy in terms of how big that, that dispute is going to become. It's clear from what President Biden said, uh, I guess about 24 hours ago now, that uh, he, he basically alluded to the fact that no one should get involved if anyone sees that this is an opportunity to hit Israel because they're a little bit off balance, that this would not be a good idea. And he's also moved, um, I think it's the Jerry Ford, the USS Jerry Ford Aircraft Carrier Group, Strike Group, into the eastern part of the Mediterranean. So I think there's a signal obviously going there. And I think the big question that hovers uh, on top of all of this is to what degree Iran has been involved in planning this. And if so, to what degree is Israel going to do anything about that? So, yeah. uh, and there are much larger questions that, you know, if you take a look at who Iran is allied with, in particular, there are a lot of bigger questions as to what's happening here, which, which we can obviously get into as the conversation unfolds. So, as I understood thus far, and for context, because, you know, things will develop quickly, it's the evening of October 9th right now. So, that's when we're having this conversation, depending on when you're watching it, much could have changed. Uh, as I understood, John, you know, you obviously have a lot more uh, connections in this world than I do. But the U.S., the Israelites, and the, the Iranians had all claimed that Iran had no involvement thus far. And it it's, would make sense if Iran were to say that. But when Israeli intelligence and U.S. intelligence comes out and kind of affirms that, it struck me as odd. Did, did you hear that statement? Do you believe it? Have you heard something since? And what do you make of that? Uh, do I believe it? 100%. No, I don't. I don't believe it. Um, I mean, look, this, this uh, maybe we can get into this now. It, it is my belief that we are in the early stages of the Third World War. Whatever that looks like, it is a lot different than maybe what we're used to in terms of what would happen in World War I and World War II. But it is clear that there, as the US, uh, most definitely, no matter what American politicians and strategists want to say, the US is shrinking from their global role. And that power vacuum is being filled by actors all over the world. And they're starting to do things that I don't think they would normally do. And of course, look, they're politically in the US, some people might say that's because Trump's gone and Biden's in there. He's viewed as a weak leader. And the Afghanistan pullout uh, definitely showed that, you know, I mean, nobody was fired for that, which for the life of me, I don't understand. But it's clear that there are a lot of actors around the world that have looked at what's happening in the US politically and have said, the US is very weak. And if we're going to start doing things, now is the time. 
and the U.S. reaction seems to be slow, if not, um, uh, <laughs> there's other words we could use, but, but basically the U.S. is not doing maybe what traditionally they might do to drop a hammer on someone and basically say, back off. And I think they've tried to do that with Ukraine. Um, look, this gets into a bigger picture between COVID in terms of what happened there, whatever the story is there, and then what happened between Russia and China, remembering that just prior to that conflict, Russia and China essentially inked this deal that they were partners for life and publicly let it be known. And, and I know from some of my intelligence contacts that there were a lot of deals being done in behind the scenes that it was clear to anyone, especially in US intelligence, that Russia and China were aligned, you know, uh, tied together by the hip, so to speak, in terms of what was happening with that invasion. So that invasion happens, it's completely decimated US uh, material stocks. They, they simply don't have the armaments to completely, to, to continue to arm Ukraine, let alone maintain their position in Korea, let alone maintain their position in, in Japan, other parts of the world. So, so that's going on. And then at the same time, Israel has been, uh, let's just say pestered, uh, pushed, cajoled by the Ukrainians, by Zelensky and by the Americans to send weaponry to Ukraine. Uh, and Israel has not sent their Iron Dome system, which Ukraine asked for publicly many, many times and privately uh, many more times. Uh, and But they have sent a lot of artillery shells and uh, a lot of other uh, armaments to Ukraine to help in their, in their war with the Russian and Mossad is even involved to a certain degree in what's happening on the ground there. So look, it could be that we have Iran, China, Russia axis that have decided it is time to start taking on the US and the European uh, empire that essentially has built all the institutions that run the world. That could very well be what's happening. And they view it as a, as a, you know, as a slow rollout, nothing needs to happen right away. Um, but they're clearly starting to push in areas that are going to stretch European power and American power uh, to the breaking point. And I think we've already seen that in Africa with what happened with um, all of these coups that have gone on in mainly French uh, controlled countries in Africa, Niger being probably the most uh, infamous one that's happened here within the last couple of months. But um, what's pretty shocking for someone like me who spent some time in Niger is, is that the French, I mean, they didn't push back. They haven't done an invasion. They haven't you know, bombed anyone. They literally haven't done anything. They actually uh, have decided to leave and their ambassador left with his tail between his legs and the French have done nothing, which I think points to the fact that uh, to a certain extent, European, any sort of European hegemony anywhere in the world is over. And uh, the Americans are the only ones left in the so-called West. So, um, as I see it, I see that these various pieces are moving, but it's clear that there is one side on one side of the table and there's a side on the other side of the table and one side is reacting to the other, which is why we're, you know, we're, we're seeing incidents like the one that we've just seen here a few days ago. So you, you answered a question that I had for you that was how much of this would you think is a coincidence? Maybe that, you know, after what you shared, it seems like a pretty juvenile question, but you know, to me, it's unclear. You know, you look at the the Russian invasion of Ukraine and and this event, and it's easy to segment and say that this is this fight. It's a two thousand year old feud. You know, this is its own thing, and and Russia's fighting back for its borderlands. Those are completely separate events. You could make that logical case, right? And say, you know, these each have their own unique and long standing history. They're not related whatsoever. But the timing strikes me as odd. And what you just shared, 
you're saying this is not a coincidence. I, I want to, if I got that yeah. wrong, you look, no. All right. All right. So I got to, I got to pull back to something you said earlier, because you had a lot of skepticism around when you said somehow, you know, Hamas was able to infiltrate the most technologically advanced border, one of the most uh, military equipped borders in the world. Uh, Israeli, what, what's the, the, you know, the army in Israel ranks sort of fourth most advanced in the world, something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't want to say that the Gaza Strip's well, it's a pretty challenged place, right? I mean, it's essentially been under a quasi siege for about 16 years. Um, many parts of the strip have power about twice a day. It's uh, it's a bunker surrounded by borders they don't control, being Israel and and Egypt. And so, what's your take on that, John? Because you had a lot of skepticism. It seems seems like from the fact that this invasion was allowed to occur, and then the response time to it occurring, which didn't seem right to you. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, look, they, they obviously planned it very well. It happened on the Sabbath, right? So um, especially really observant Jews are not going to be uh, doing anything on that. Some, some observant Jews don't even look at their phones, right? Nothing to do, sure. uh, no, no work on the Sabbath. So it happened on the Sabbath. It also happened on a national holiday. So to begin with, I think the, the, um, uh, the typical radar that might be up would have definitely been pulled back somewhat. And at the same time, there's been at least within Israel itself, it seemed like there's been no indication that something like this was gonna happen. You know, it's not like there were, I mean, there's always been tensions around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, uh, which is uh, another issue we could talk about um, here in a, in a few minutes, but um, there's nothing that would indicate anything like this. Now this said, there are some reports that uh, some Egyptian, uh, there's an Egyptian intelligence uh, official that AP was reporting, and I think it came from a newspaper in, in Cairo originally, that he had said that he had actually given um, the Netanyahu government a heads up that they were planning something big, you know, to be ready, something along these lines. And, and I think it, the, the exact quote was something along the lines that Netanyahu seemed very disinterested in that. Uh, which I find pretty hard to believe, just knowing the kind of guy that he is. But um, so, so we have that piece of the puzzle. We also have lots of videos out there on Twitter from you know retired Israeli intelligence folks saying, you know, if there's a you know a cockroach that moves underneath this fence, we know about it, right? So how could these guys you know blow a concrete fence and then you know cut through these you know these wire fences and be able to get in there in that kind of with that kind of speed? Uh, there are some interesting, uh, there, there's a really interesting angle to this in terms of communications, because I think, um, I think a lot of people would have thought something of this complexity would have been monitored a long time ago, that there would have been some sort of a way that, that Israeli intelligence would have at least picked up on the fact just on lo- online chatter, and if not them, NSA for sure. But uh, it's already been put out, by, uh, uh, put out there by David Goldman. Uh, from Asia Times that Huawei, uh, that all the phones and all the telecommunication devices uh, set up in Ga- in Gaza and being used by Hamas are Huawei, which means that that telecom network is not able to be penetrated by NSA. So um, if you look at it from that point of view, obviously the Chinese would have an indication of what's happening and they probably don't care because you know there's no blowback going to happen on, on, uh, on them about this. They don't care one way or the other. But uh, from the Israeli side, you know, they might have just been blind to the fact that they're using Huawei all the time. They're not necessarily, you know, adept at, at uh, infiltrating those communication networks. 
so they just don't know what's going on so so there's there's that side of it um look there's there's been a lot of political turmoil domestically within Israel over the last six months uh like tremendous domestic turmoil uh the worst that's ever happened since 1948 uh that's basically over Netanyahu and and some uh, judicial uh, changes that he he wants to bring to the country and that turmoil might have focused everyone inwardly and they're simply not paying attention to what's happening with the Palestinians and I think to a certain extent uh, if you look at the fact there's the Abraham Accords then Israel normalized relations with UAE right with the United Arab Emirates and there's been all this talk over the last you know six weeks that Israel was going to normalize relations with Saudi Arabia so to a certain extent, I think the Palestinian issue has been in the back burner for quite a long time in Israel. So to what extent, maybe, quite frankly, the signals that they may have been receiving might have very well been that, you know, look, there's not, uh, there's not a chance that, uh, that they can mount any sort of, you know, serious challenge to, uh, to Israel. And, you know, we don't necessarily have to worry about that. Not, and, and the other side of it is, is that the leader of the PA uh, is is quite old at this point, the Palestinian Authority, and he's running the West Bank, and there's there's going to obviously be some sort of a power struggle when he passes away over the PA and Hamas internally. So to a certain extent, it could be actually that, you know, they were looking, Israeli intelligence, Shin Bet, Mossad, whoever, were looking at all these issues and saying to themselves, look, we really don't have to worry about anything. We are focused on the outside, and even if they tried something, we would repel it very quickly and it would be over. And I think what makes this different, uh, quite frankly, it is kind of small in the grand scheme of things, right? I mean, look, a thousand Israelis, it looks like roughly uh, were killed in this attack. Um, and it is a terrible loss of life. I do not want to discount that. And, and basically within 48 hours, these, you know, they say there's something like 1500 of, of these Hamas terrorists have been killed. Um, and it already the, you know, it looks like Israel's really starting to hammer Gaza. So, um, so to a certain extent, you know, it, it's over and done with, but the, the psychological damage and these hostages that are being held, I, I, I spoke with uh, a friend, an Israeli friend this morning, whose next door neighbor uh, is obviously also uh, uh, Jewish and was at this music event and has been taken hostage. So, um, you know, I mean, just listening to her describe what's happening, I mean, it is awful. It is terrible. And that sort of a narrative and a story is going to supersede any sort of, you know, whatever else is happening because it is so terrible, the human side of the story, because every one of us, you know, has been to some sort of a concert or an event, and we can only imagine all of a sudden out of the blue being taken hostage by bloodthirsty terrorists, which is, you know, is the worst Hollywood movie you know, that you could imagine and it happened for real. So, um, so I look, I, I think the government was asleep at the switch. There's going to be political implications on that. It looks like they're trying to, to at least in the interim, have some sort of, um, you know, joint government, unity government to get through this period of time. Because I think behind the scenes, they're clearly, they're, they're definitely worried about Iran. I mean, there's a lot of things that could happen now that would put Israel on its heels in a huge hurry. And um, I, I think that's probably one of the reasons why there's an aircraft carrier strike group in the Eastern Mediterranean tonight. Yeah. OK, I want to talk about that. So so first of all, thanks for recapping that. And, and it's good. I had to go there because obviously Twitter is just filled right now with people asking that question, saying this doesn't make sense. 
there's no way that that Hamas just walks in like this and then response takes that long. And maybe there's something going on there, or maybe intelligence failures happen, right? If you think about, I mean, the whole West seemed pretty caught flat-footed when Russia invaded Ukraine very recently. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was or was not the case. The U.S. was caught flat-footed by 9-11, by Pearl Harbor. I mean, these things happen. I get it. In each one of those events, you can make a case that maybe, you know, politicians do more than the civilians did. But the civilians were caught flat-footed every single time for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever something like this occurs, I always wonder, what are they thinking? Like, what what is the true motivation here? Because the Israeli response is going to be swift and unforgiving. It's going to be very focused. And the Gaza Strip is like the third densest place on the earth in terms of population. Like you can't really hit a target there without massive civilian casualties. And they're going to get hit really, really hard. And you know, it's coming, you know? And I just, I, I find myself almost dumbfounded, John, where I'm like, what, what was the desired outcome of this? Because I only see one at this point, right? And it's, it's, it ends badly for the civilians in the Gaza Strip. So do you think I'm, am I missing a bigger threat? I mean, you, maybe you touched on it. Maybe there's a, another offensive coming from the North and Lebanon. I know that's going to be a big thing, but, you know, in terms of launching an attack that on paper seems so fruitless, some early success for sure. Absolutely. But if you call that success, uh, but the response is going to be decimation, is it not? And what, and if not, what am I missing here? Uh, I mean, look, at, at first glance, that's clearly what's going to happen. They're going to be utterly decimated there. Um, I mean, the Gaza story is a complete nightmare, right? I mean, it, it, uh, they, they were given this piece of, I mean, basically the Israelis, you know, they, uh, you know, Ariel Sharon, when, when he was uh, prime minister, um, who, if you know anything about him, he was, I mean, a very fearsome general, uh, not uh, friendly to the Palestinians at all. And uh, many called him. Uh, yeah, he 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 was he was a bad dude. He he knew how to uh, how to take care of business. But when he was prime minister, he basically, I, I think, to a certain extent, offered a bit of a uh, you know an olive branch and said, "Look, we're going to give you Gaza." And to great political harm to himself, he forcibly removed Jews who were living there, right? And yeah. because it was a huge agricultural producing region of Israel at that time, pulled them out and gave everything to the Palestinians. And um, there's a very famous saying that the Palestinians never miss a chance to miss a chance, uh, miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh, They missed it with Oslo, with Clinton, and uh, they definitely missed it there because, I mean, that was maybe one of the best opportunities they they would have had to have like they have this incredible agricultural production facility, you know, here. Uh, And if they start making it there, you know, their people are they're not going to be relying on international aid any longer. There's a lot of reasons to, uh, you know, to embrace this opportunity. And instead, they, you know, they, they went the other way. And uh, so, look, what, what is this about? This is why I have a hard time. I mean, there are several uh, geopolitical people that if you talk to them privately, maybe think, well, not maybe, I know they do because we talked about it, think the way I'm, I'm about to speak publicly, is, is that these conflicts are part of a bigger master strategy in terms of trying to push back U.S. hegemony globally. And it is happening on every single front. You see it everywhere, right? And uh, if you just take a look at what's gone on with the Ukraine situation, you take a look at what's gone on with with uh, even how what China is doing with the U.S. right now. I, I, um, I had a conversation with a, uh, an intelligence uh, person last week, and, uh, and he told me that they expect 
is a U.S. intelligence uh, person. They expect at some point in the spring for China to make a move on Taiwan. That's their expectation. Of course, things could change. But right now, politically in Taiwan, Taiwan is definitely um, looks like they're going to vote for the uh, the pro-U.S. candidate again. Uh, and the pro-Beijing candidate is not going to have any uh, legs at all, in which case it pushes Beijing to uh, to make a move militarily. And uh, so, look, that's also on deck here. So if you kind of go through all the different scenarios of what's happening in the world be between Ukraine, between this and Iran, remember, Iran is arming Russia to the hilt with these drones, right? And, and to a certain extent, Ukraine has been a real testing ground for new types of, of weaponry. But you, uh, Iran is very involved in what's happening there. And Iran does not want an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel. They do not want relations normalized. Because at that point, Iran has no, I mean, they're in serious trouble at that point. They can't really mount it, um, any sort of offensive actions against Saudi Arabia or Israel, especially if they're joined at the hip publicly. Everyone knows that intelligence-wise, they've been sharing information for years. But uh, to actually have relations normalized would be really uh, not a good thing for Iran. So... Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of different factors that go into this, and that's why I would say that this attack, uh, I can only assume, is part of a bigger effort that we may see unfold here over the next you know, few days or weeks. I pray to God it doesn't, but I think you could definitely see a scenario where Hezbollah starts moving in from the north and gets very aggressive. And you remember the last time that happened, I think it was around 2013-14, it, was, uh, it wasn't good for Israel. Israel did not... Uh, it wasn't a, a, a sure win, let's put it that way. So if you have Hezbollah making moves there, if you all of a sudden have a situation where Iran starts moving their soldiers over to Syria, remember Iran's been backing the Syrian government, uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad, uh, since the entire Syrian uh, civil war that's, been, that's still going on today. So if, if Iran moves troops there, they move down, remember the border with the Golan Heights is right there. They're bordered, Syria's bordered with Israel. And you all of a sudden you have Syrian and Iranian troops coming over that way. Uh, I mean, you, you probably saw it yourself. Even the Taliban announced that they're willing to fight. You know, so if if the Iranians airlift them over to Syria and they come down through, I mean, all of a sudden Israel has a very serious problem on three different fronts. And can they handle that much at the same time? And I think that there there would be a very big question if they could. And if all of that happens, and any of these other conflicts globally start to become a, just a little bit unhinged, I think you're going to have a situation where things really start to move quite quickly. And I think that's why there's obviously so much concern, because when you kind of pull out and look at the whole chessboard, it is, it's pretty frightening. Okay. So you, you touched on Taiwan. There's a bunch of threads here I want to pull on, John. Um, right away, you know, on Saturday, when I woke up to this news, Taiwan was kind of my first thought. Because if you're going to put these things in sequence, then you start picking off the territories around the world that the U.S. has promised to protect, and uh, you're going to put them to the test um, in some some kind of synchronized fashion. And you, uh, the U.S. has drained a lot of the resources um, supporting Ukraine, as you mentioned, including they had an armory reserve in the Middle East located in Israel, and a lot of that's been drained to support Ukraine. Um, and I, I wondered, you know, a couple of times in the last six months, if the U.S. was playing their hand a bit too quick in terms of how they were reaching out aggressively to support Ukraine. You know, 
not, not making an ethics argument here. It's just resources are finite. Look at the energy situation in the US right now. It's not pretty, right? Um, okay, so uh, where do I want to go next year? So, you know, does the what is the US response at this point from your standpoint, John? And and the US can't fight a war on too many more fronts. Um, but they're in a sticky situation because it's like you either step up and defend the places that you claimed that you said you were going to, right? And stand by your word globally. Everyone's watching to see if you're going to or not. But that means entering a war that you might not win, which is an even bigger risk, right? You got two poor choices in front of you. You know, which one do you think they take? I, I, I think I have an assumption here, but what do you think? I mean, look, you also have the, the U.S. domestic political situation that factors into this, right? You have an election coming up in uh, in roughly a year. Uh, and here's like, if, if some percentage of Americans have no interest in supporting Ukraine, the number that have no interest in supporting Israel is far, far smaller. This is a war far closer to home, is it not? And the, the homegrown support for Israel, I would expect to be multiple times higher than any support that's been given to the Ukraine. Is that correct? Yes, I, I would 100% agree with that, for sure. I mean, people can't even find uh, Ukraine on a map, but Israel, I think, uh, yeah. there's at least, uh, I mean, what, 60, 70% of the American electorate still at least say that they're Christian. Uh, and in general terms, Christians tend to support Israel, especially evangelical Christians. So, uh, yeah. yes, I, I think there would be widespread political support across the aisle for Israel, no matter what happens in the U.S. Mm. Okay. So, so believing that then it's an inevitability that we, you know, we know what the response will be. Um, is the biggest victim thus, I mean, okay, this, I don't know how to phrase this question without sounding like an asshole, but you know, is, is the biggest loser thus far in this scenario, maybe Ukraine, because if you now have to concentrate your available resources to defend and make a decision here, Right. I think and I think about the American public and I think about sentiment and I think about short term election cycles and, um, you know, how quickly previous crises get swept under the rug when a new one arises, especially when that new one is maybe a bit closer to home. And, and that seems to be what this is relative to the war in Eastern Europe. What, what do you think about that? Uh, if there's a big loser, for sure, it's Ukraine. I mean, look, U Ukraine is uh, that situation was already headed in a very, very, very negative direction for Ukraine anyway. And I, I think there's, I mean, in Europe especially, I think the political will to support them is pretty much finished. Uh, Poland's made it public, but I think many governments, from what I'm hearing, are privately saying that that conflict needs to end, and it needs to end yesterday. Uh, just look at Germany's situation. There's, uh, you know, I mean, you know, the, the, the country's being deindustrialized, right? So uh, you have the chemical industry moving to China, you have the auto industry moving to the United States, and it's all about energy prices because I'm sorry, American LNG is whatever it is, four or five times more expensive going across an ocean than coming through a pipeline from Russia. So I think there's a lot of angst within Europe that that Ukraine situation needs to be wrapped up immediately. Uh, on the US side, there still seems to be a lot of push to keep this thing going forward. However, it's it's also instructive to know that the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Milley, he just retired and they now have a new one. Uh, and oftentimes personnel changes with policy or sorry, policy changes with new personnel because the old, you know, the old personnel simply can't, uh, you know, they're completely invested in this thing and, and they simply can't back out. So the fact that there's a new chairman of the Joint Chiefs means that there might be a little more room, wiggle room to get around some of the uh, the statements that were made earlier by Milley about what should and shouldn't happen in Ukraine. 
So that conflict is clearly uh, winding down, at least in terms of the Western support for it. Um, it's, you know, I mean, you've, you've probably seen the same things I have in, in talking to a couple of people. It looks like it's, it's definitely going to be not a good situation for Zelensky when this whole thing ends. But, uh, and especially if Russia decides, you know, if, if Russia's game is they're just going to sit back and wait and let Ukraine completely exhaust itself, which looks like, you know, it has. Uh, and then they decide to really mobilize. I, I think they just announced another 150,000 soldiers mobilizing this fall now. So uh, if they go ahead and do that and decide to actually do a full court press, I mean, it, it becomes pretty catastrophic pretty quickly. There's also word that the polls may move in because there's a part of, of, uh, of Western Ukraine that, uh, that used to be part of Poland historically. So, I mean, there's a lot of ways that Ukraine could end up being carved up. But Ukraine is most definitely, uh, they were already a loser in terms of where things were headed with that conflict. And they're even a bigger one now because, you know, everyone is looking at this other conflict. And if this Israeli uh, Hamas situation, if it expands, Hezbollah joins and or it takes a long time, as in it takes two or three months and pushes us to Christmas or even into the new year. I mean, there simply isn't going to be any political will in the U.S. to continue this Ukraine uh, situation. Okay. Okay. I got to pull back to something you said earlier in this interview. It was uh, a pretty dramatic statement. And you hinted that we are likely heading into World War III. Um, I would, I need to get you to explain what that means to you at this point, John. <sighs> well, I mean, look, um, if you look around the world, at the way the world has been post 1945, that world is over. And the American generation that won that war, the greatest generation, my grandparents, they're all gone. And the baby boomers, they're all retiring. And, you know, they're going to be retiring for another decade or so, but they're already a huge bulk of them. I think roughly at least over half of the boomers are already retired. They're out of the picture. So what's happening is my, you know, and our generation is now the one that's going to assume the mantle and uh, of global leadership in terms of, uh, of running Western institutions. And I think you can see, if you just take a look around, that there are some serious problems happening in all Western countries. Not, uh, the, the demographic issue is, is completely catastrophic. Uh, I mean, that, that in itself is, uh, I mean, it's funny because there's, uh, there's a very famous verse from Proverbs, which was written by King Solomon, uh, reputedly the, the richest man who ever lived and the, and the wisest one. But in Proverbs, he has this really interesting uh, thing that he wrote where he, he literally says something to the effect of, you know, a growing population is a king's pride and a dwindling population is a king's doom. And I think that is happening across every Western country, Japan, the United States, Europe, all the rest. And that's being replaced. I know in, in the U.S. there's always been this this uh, this mantra that you know it's okay the U.S. still has the you know the best population growth of any of the Western countries, but that population growth is, growth is coming purely from immigration. And the reality is that the levels of immigration are so high that how do you integrate this many people into a Western system that they were not necessarily brought up in? And is that possible at least in the short term, long enough to push off civilizations that are clearly ready to push back? and that is China and Russia. And obviously they have their own demographic issues. China in particular has a lot of demographic problems, 
but they still have a heck of a lot more people than the United States does. So, um, so I, I think you start from that point of view that the rest of the world, if you go outside of the Western bubble and just talk to anyone, you know, in Africa or in Asia, and you talk to them about what's happening in Western Europe and in particular in the United States, I mean, I haven't met anyone that says, oh, the future is definitely in the United States. No one says that privately. No one does. Everyone looks at what's happening and says it looks like a slow motion train wreck. So uh, if that's what the average person is is saying, what do you think the politicians are saying and seeing right in terms of what's happening? So if they're if they view that the U.S. is weak, which clearly with what happened in Afghanistan, the U.S. is viewed as weak. And that's why Putin decided to move when he did. Uh, and China was definitely 100% behind him. I think these countries uh, view it as their opportunity to start taking some of this global leadership away from the US. And then you also have this other debt issue, which I know all countries have this debt issue, but the fact is the US dollar is the global reserve currency. And uh, I, you probably saw it yourself last week, Peter Schiff was, was talking about the fact that, you know, if, if we just extrapolate out current interest rates uh, with the current deficits the way they are in the US, and we push that out to you know another whatever 15 years or 2035 something along those lines i mean you're literally looking at a situation where half the federal budget is allocated just for interest payments on the debt i mean it's impossible this is not going to work right there's not a chance this the current path that the west is on is unsustainable and simply will not work canada same situation these pension plans are all going to blow up so if you are China and Russia and Iran, countries that feel deeply offended by the way that they have been treated by the United States in particular and the Western world in general over the last, you know, especially over the last, let's say, 50 years, and China in particular has a very strong, you know, their hundred years of humiliation sentiment that's within the country that views, you know, the opium wars, which we're not educated on in the West. But if you take a little uh, bit of a glimpse into them, you'll, you'll find pretty quickly that it, it's uh, it's not pretty for uh, for Britain uh, and the United States to a certain extent with what happened with the opium wars. And then there was the century of humiliation that ended when the Chinese communists took power. But tens of millions of people died in the civil conflicts that were happening within China, you know, with a lot of foreign interference. So Japanese invasions and such. So these countries have a bone to pick and we don't necessarily we're not necessarily aware of these historical grievances and uh because to a certain extent many of us we live in this technological world and we're not necessarily uh attuned to the way the rest of the world thinks about their own history because the truth is even our own history is somewhat you know we can't remember what happened yesterday because we're scrolling so fast on our phones to see what's what's happening you know today tomorrow we're not thinking about yesterday but these other, especially civilizations that still retain a lot of that history and culture, uh, they don't like the way they've been treated. So there's a there's a grievance there. And I fear that that grievance is coalescing into something where you have Russia, China and Iran, you know, coming together in some sort of axis that says, look, the West is weak. And if we're going to make a move, we're going to make it now. And it's clear that they're, you know, they're making that move. And, and quite frankly, a year out from the U.S., the most, you know, politically, you know, domestically divisive election that's upcoming, uh, this would be the time you would move, right? If you were them, you want to move when the politics 
in your adversary are so convoluted that they might not be able to get their act together in time to defend themselves. So um, I fear that that's where we're going. Um, I mean, look, could cooler heads prevail? They most certainly could, but I don't see any statesmen or stateswomen on the scene right now that make me think that a deal is possible. Um, you know, of course, you look at what happened in World War II, uh, you know, would anyone have guessed that Churchill, uh, you know, would have been the, the leader he turned into and that, you know, Roosevelt would do what he did. So I, I think uh, sometimes history is what, uh, what creates great leaders, just, just the things that happen. But we're clearly heading into some sort of maelstrom right now. And um, let's just say, looking at it objectively, uh, Russia's leadership and China's leadership, although they have a lot of problems, they definitely seem to have goals. Whereas Western leaders, quite frankly, they're interested in social engineering and not a heck of a lot else. And they need to get focused on things like are happening in Israel, happening in Ukraine, and potentially happening in other places like Taiwan uh, and things that could spread all over the world. They need to buckle down and focus on what's important right now. You know, you, you touched on uh, our short-term memories and our, our lack of, frankly, history in the West and specifically in, in North America. And, you know, it also makes sense to me. Yes, we're we're scroll nation now, you know, and so that is the case. In addition, we think about history in the context of our history, do we not? And so how could we understand, you know, a thousand year history of a uh, 2000 year history of Russia you know, of, of, of countries in the Middle East when our history is a couple hundred years old. It's like that almost doesn't exist to a lot of Americans. Uh, but over the last 600 years, you know, we've had Portugal's been a superpower. Spain's been a superpower. The Dutch have been a superpower, the UK and USA. And that's five cycles within 600 years, inside of 600 years. And when you look at it from that standpoint, you're like, yeah, it's time to pass the puck. Like that would be normal. It would be normal to pass the buck. In addition, during that same 600 years, you mentioned, you know, a, a few very powerful Chinese, very advanced Chinese dynasties. Um, during the end of empire, you, you typically see the same three things. You see a, a government that gets over their skis because they become, you know, they came from maybe poverty. They became wealthy. They became decadent. They became indebted. And that fueled decline, right? That's that's a cycle. And, and that's an insolvent nation. And then Usually within that cycle, you see a, a ton of civil unrest and um, usually born out of wealth disparity and a, a massive and increasing wealth gap. You can tick both those boxes in the United States. And the third thing that you often see is then you see the external conflict or the rising powers or power. And often it's not one power, it's a few that kind of rise up and challenge the existing power. And you can tick all those boxes right now very clearly in the United States. I mean, just that one internal cycle of like productivity fuels wealth, wealth fuels Decadence, decadence feels debt, debt feels decline. I mean, that's that's a natural empire cycle. And you tell me where we're at right now in the West, right? It's very, very obvious. My hope is that even though I think we're in the declining years of the American empire, that somehow this will be civil. I mean, I'm just like, I'm like, how, you know, how could this be a civil ending? And you think, you think, oh, well, London's still a great place to visit, even post UK empire, you know, so is Madrid, so is Amsterdam, so are these places. But the years of decline were not so pleasant as we know, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it, when you mentioned, you made a comment about leadership in the West versus leadership in the East and look, I'm not making a bet or, a uh, you know, I'm not complimenting autocracies in any, in any way, but if you're going to categorize Eastern leadership as weak or strong relative to Western leadership, weak or strong, 
It's like, oh my gosh, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Very much so. It's a bunch of virtue signaling, two-year election cycles, uh, no vision, and uh, and a complete failure to unify the people. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Any thoughts yeah, on that? Look, I, I mean, Jay, you you uh, you nailed it. You know, I mean, it. Uh, like you, I, I certainly don't support autocracies, and I certainly want, wouldn't want to live in either one of those countries, Russia and China in particular. But uh, if you just look at their leadership from you know, outside at what's happening, you certainly, they certainly seem to have their act together a heck of a lot more than what we have, you know, in, in Canada or the US uh, and in Western Europe in particular. You know, I mean, how many prime ministers has the UK had just over the last five years, right? I mean, it's, it's becoming right. a joke. Right. So um, that said, I mean, look, China has a lot of internal problems at the upper levels of the Communist Party, sure. right? Sure. There, there are definite issues there, and there's, uh, you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> Putin had some sort of a, of a coup that was uh, a coup or not coup, whatever the heck it was, right? Um, and yet, at the same time, we have, you know, what happened on January 6th, which was, you know, I wouldn't categorize it as an insurrection, so to speak, but it was definitely an indication that the political uh, situation in the United States is, is tenuous. And I, I mean, I was in Washington, D.C. the day that Trump took the uh, when he was inaugurated. And I have to tell you that that um, that experience ever since then in 2017, January of 2017, it has informed a lot of my thinking because I have never seen protests and violence associated with the inauguration of a U.S. president like that ever before. And uh, that ever since then, I've been thinking this, this is not a country. How, how are they going to hang together here? And I know historically, U.S. has had a lot of problems and they're always able to sort it out. And, and, uh, and the way the system is set up, it seems to be able to let off steam in appropriate places. But the system itself is being broken down just by legally what's happening right now with former President Trump. I mean, I, I don't think I think anyone, if you ask them honestly what's happening with all of these indictments, are they political or are they, you know, is this real? I mean, it's political. There's not a chance any of these things would have happened if he was not going to run. But because he's running, they're going to try to throw the book at him to prevent him from being on the ticket again. So uh, this this is unprecedented. Never seen this before. So, yeah, I mean, the U.S. needs to get their act together. And there are some, you know, some people think Robert Kennedy is the right person. Uh, Glenn Youngkin's a very interesting guy. You should keep your eye on him. But uh, the governor of Virginia who used to be CEO of Carlisle. But, um, uh, you know, it's the U.S. needs some, you know, I, I mean, look, maybe they need a slap in the face to wake up a little bit. Maybe that needs to happen. But who do you but, slap? Uh, it's like currently, you know. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the problem I, I see with this is like, you could find the right leader. I, I think they may exist and maybe they're raising their hand and maybe they're saying the right things. But the population's at a point where it's just not going to resonate. The population's right. not focused on that. The, the population's no. focused on pronouns. And uh, yeah. and just, just I mean, I could go on. It's just ridiculous. And so you could find that 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 visionary who uh, who could cut a path, right? Cut a civil path through the declining years of empire. I mean, that's that may be the best case scenario. Probably is. Mm -hmm. But let's shoot for that, right? But that person likely exists and it's just... How are they possibly going to rally support in today's world when you look at the civil unrest and the civil divisions and the internal conflict? It's like, forget leading the U.S. externally. 
you know, it's a dumpster fire internally. Right. And I'm up in right. Canada. I'm, I'm, I feel the same way about Canada right now. And I got three super young kids and I'm not sure where I should raise them, frankly. And I've talked with this on my channel many times, you know, we hold Canadian and U S passports, but we're also putting down roots in Southeast Asia just for optionality. And I'm trying to be nimble and agile. And it, it comes back to that. You know, I've never felt like pride. I don't feel proud of being Canadian because I had nothing to do with it. You know, I'm proud of things I accomplished, right? I didn't draw the lines where the borders are. I was just born here. So I feel really fortunate and really lucky. Absolutely. Every single day, I feel blessed to have been born in, in a country where I was surrounded by opportunity and choice and predictable, safe governance and all this stuff. But if I think forward, okay, so I want to put my kids in that scenario and my grandkids, then I got to think, where will I find that 30 years down the road, 40 years down the road? And will I find that here? And I want to say yes. And I feel like if I can lean in and help contribute to that becoming a reality, I want to do that. Simultaneously, I want to take care of my pack. And I'm looking outside and saying, you know, maybe there's a better place for us, though. And I don't know. Now, you know, you got kids, John. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Trying to make those decisions and think about the future in terms of like, okay, there's volatility always. And I think the 2020s will be like the 2020s have been continued, unprecedented uncertainty and chaos, unfortunately. And that's proving true. But I'll still bet long all day on human ingenuity and progress over the long term. Um, but what do you what do you make of that? You know, 20, 30 years, you're you're a father. What do you, what are your what are your thoughts, John? Uh I have not thought out uh say 30 years from now. Um I you know, this is off the top of my head. I, I will say it's clear that we're going through some sort of a, a similar um, you know, realignment. Uh, similar in some aspects to what happened when the printing press came out, right? That the printing press completely, the, between the printing press and the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, all of a sudden, you know, information that was relegated just to a few became available to the masses, right? And that completely upended everything, you know? They, I mean, they, you know, they read the Bible. Martin Luther was like, here, you can read it yourself now. And they read it and they're like, why are we paying you priests so that we can be absolved of our sins? And like, this doesn't make sense. It's not even in here. You guys are getting rich off, you know, you made this up. So, um, so in many ways, the same thing is happening now with this internet revolution that started in the mid nineties. Uh, and then the social, social media, when it came around in 2007, 2008, I mean, look at what's happened in 15 years, the social changes that if you would have told me I was in university, you know, in uh, whatever the mid nineties, if you would have told me what we're talking about now in terms of the social engineering that's going on, no one would have believed you. Even the furthest to the left, you know, individual that I, you know, went to university with would have never believed you if you would have said, uh, you know, some of the issues that are, that are happening now. So um, where this goes another 20 or 30 years from now, uh, I mean, you have to assume there's some sanity is going to be pulled back into the system, if only because the system cannot continue on if there isn't sanity, if there isn't some sort of family structure that raises children appropriately, uh, despite the fact that there's a video out there in a company that says they're going to, you know, basically manufacture babies in test tubes and raise them and all the rest. I mean, that's not around yet. You know, yeah. it might come, it might come, but we're, we're uh, from everything that I've, uh, that I've heard uh, and read about it, it looks like we're uh, we're two or three decades away from even the distinct possibility of that happening. Right. So at least until then, you know, where do the people come from? Families have to raise them. 
And I think we're already seeing with some of the social unrest in terms of what's happening in, in many of these inner cities in the United States, where many of these young men were raised without fathers. And, you know, if you have 70% of the black population doesn't have a father at home, well, you're going to get young men acting out. You simply are because the old man isn't there to, you know, drop the hammer on him and say, smarten up. That's not how you should, you know, treat a woman or, you know, you shouldn't be stealing or doing this or that. Um, so I, I think we we're literally seeing what happens when you disintegrate the family structure. And the question is, is does that family structure get uh, somehow uh, rejuvenated over, I, I frankly, some of the the, um, you know, the reactions to what's going on everywhere. And I think in, in some some places you're going to see more of that than others. Um, at the same time, we also have this overarching global internet structure that is being built that is um, that is incredible in terms of its potential, awe-inspiring in terms of its potential, but terrifying in terms of the downsides. And that global internet structure that is companies like Facebook and Google and in China in terms of, of, of what they're doing with, with WeChat and such, uh, these companies are basically becoming governments in a way. They're far more powerful than at least, you know, seven or 80 percent of the governments on Earth today. So where are they 20 years from now where they can sway? You know, if we have a democratic election, they can sway, you know, sway the election one way or the other. So so the question is, to what extent do general, you know, human beings want to live in an environment where basically we're being pushed by algorithms into a certain box? Um, and, and I, you know, honestly, like you, I, I kind of bet for the humans in the long term there, because, you know, no matter what happens, I, I think we'll figure it out. I think it's going to get really messy, unfortunately, because this is we're in uncharted territory and there will always be people that want to rule other people. And uh, and that's uh, that has to get sorted out exactly how that's going to work. Uh, I mean, we're seeing that battle right now, right, with Bitcoin and, and CBDCs, you know, which way is that going to go? One one promises you know, quite frankly, a pretty wide open world. And the other one promises uh, the potential for a very terrifying world. So so I think a lot of these issues are going to be sorted out. Um, and just judging by the history books uh, that I've read, uh, I think it's probably going to get, um, you know, it, it's not going to be easy. But I, I think you just have to tell yourself that there's nothing new under the sun, as the saying goes. And you just have to prepare and, and be ready to take whatever comes your way. Yeah. And you, you hit on the, I mean, you hit the print and pre printing press analogy, which I think is super timely because, you know, in a lot of what you share, this is the time where information that was previously only available to a few was suddenly available to the masses. I mean, we're experiencing that now. People are asking the question, or they were asking it back then, why are we relying on the priests to give us this information? It's the same question people are asking today. Why are we relying on uh, government agencies and certain organizations and lobby groups to make our decisions for us, right? It's very similar. It's remarkably similar. And it, it struck me because um, I had breakfast this morning from uh, a good friend of mine who works at Canaccord Genuity, and he was just in Toronto at their annual conference. And one of their keynote speakers was former Canadian Prime Minister Harper, who I've had on my show a couple of times. And he drew that same analogy. And he said, look, <clears throat> most often the first politicians to really get a handle on the new communication technology are complete yahoos and they cause all kinds of chaos and uh and uh division but then eventually some more accountable responsible politicians figure it out or leaders you know figure it out and they they are able to leverage those same technologies in a 
more organized or responsible fashion. I don't know if, if there's something there, but you know, it, it sort of made sense to me. I was like, well, you know, yeah, it's obviously no coincidence that civil unrest has skyrocketed in parallel with adoption of everybody being a media agency. I mean, that's where we're at, right? At this point, right? Everyone mm -hmm. can play media if they want to. And one of the hardest things about this uh, situation in Israel is determining like how much of this footage is actually occurring in Israel. So, like, you know, we, we've seen so much of this in the past when conflict erupts and there's footage from previous unrelated conflicts repurposed and then a narrative attached to them posted on social media. And it's very difficult to dissect like what's actually authentic, what's actually happening on the ground here. Um, unfortunately, most people don't ask that question. They, they scroll, they see, and then they re-communicate and they just pass it on or, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, I, I am hopeful though, because I am feeling myself uh, like I'm having a much higher appreciation of traditional conservative values over the last, like maybe four to five years. I don't think that's just because I became a father seven years ago and now I have three kids it tends to make you a bit more conservative when you have more accountabilities. Uh, but in general, when, when I start moving a certain way, thinking a certain way, um, I'm not unique or, uh, you know, an early adopter. I'm part of a trend I'm part of a wave, you know, and I am seeing a bit of a wave of, of young families migrating back maybe from you know a couple decades of more secular mindset towards something deeper uh something deeper and more meaningful and because there's been something missing maybe that thing is what unites us and that hasn't existed for a while and um there's a real value in in finding that spiritual alignment that my family is seeking now and and revisiting and reigniting in our life which has been lovely but it provides us a strong foundation and 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 that foundation has not existed largely in the West, and we've been walking away from it during the you know the age of science, which has also been beneficial, but comes at a cost. Yeah, look, I uh, I I'm in complete agreement on uh, on all those points. There there's definitely a, there is a sense that the only way we're going to get out of this is to uh, embrace some of the values that we've had in the past, right? That we've thrown out, that we've decided that you know science is the only way. And, uh, and I think we're already seeing with some of the policies that are happening all around us, uh, if COVID wasn't the, you know, the first thing in terms of the way it was rolled out. And, and uh, I mean, look, are, are there very many people out there today that actually still uh, have any sense of trust in government agencies after everything that happened with COVID? No matter what side of that issue you're on, yeah. it seems like governments definitely uh, uh, screwed up, right? Uh, and I know they were rushed trying to make decisions, but, um, there, there were a lot of mistakes made. So, yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm optimistic for the human race. We, we're still going to be around for a long time, um, but things are, are accelerating very, very quickly. And it's an exciting time to be alive. And, and quite honestly, I feel blessed that I was raised in the time that I was. You know, I grew up, I was born in the you know, mid-70s and I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, I, to a certain extent before that Internet culture, you know, hit really, right? Um, so I had that, you know, pre-internet culture, and now I'm I'm in it, and I remember what it was like back then. Uh, and to a certain extent, at least in North America, I know a lot of other places. You talk to folks, and you know, it was very difficult uh, to live. But the truth is, you know, we were very wealthy in North America in the '80s and the '90s to a certain extent, especially compared to the rest of the world. Uh, and now we're entering into a period where we're going to have to buckle down and get through this turbulence, uh, which it's you know it's already here. Uh, but we can get through it. We can figure it out. Uh, it's interesting what what Harper said about um, 
you know, these communication technologies and, and, uh, and how Yahoo's often get a hold of them first. Um, <laughs> we'll see what happens with, uh, with virtual reality, whoever gets all of that first, yeah. but, uh, yeah. uh, although I do want to check out that sphere very quickly, maybe we're all going to have spheres in our basement eventually, <laughs> but, uh, in Vegas, but, um, uh, but yeah, it's clear that there are a lot of changes happening very, very quickly and people are trying to hold on to something. So, uh, you know, for the Christian West, right? I mean, the reason we're called the West is because the church split in two, right? When the Eastern Orthodox went one way and the Western world went a different way, right? So I, I think even we have these, you know, these, these words we use and we don't even understand the history behind them, right? That we're still using them. And I think there are people that are starting to sense, hey, we need to, where did we come from? Where are we going? And these values like free speech and, uh, uh, you know, and democracy and freedom of assembly, all these issues, these are issues willing, like this is a hill I'm willing to die on because if we don't have those, then what do we have, right? We're literally ruled by, you know, totalitarians at that point, that's where it's gonna go. So these issues, I think these battles are going to, uh, you know, unfold and obviously in Canada, there's a lot of issues over the, the censorship bills and such, but you know, there are politicians on the scene that are like, you know, if we get elected, we're gonna revoke it completely. So yes. it's, it's, there are very many, there are a lot of positive developments because a lot of people are waking up to what's going on. Uh, I just hope that everyone wakes up in time. Yeah. Oh man, John, this has been great having you on and thanks for making the time, you know, late at night to come and chat to me on short notice, by the way, M much, much appreciated. And I know a lot of this conversation well, let's, I'm not going to sugarcoat. It's hardcore subject matter. There's a couple hot wars occurring that are likely to expand. So I don't want to apologize for having a darker episode here because frankly, it's, it's dark material material. And there's people that are really suffering and in the most atrocious and horrific scenarios that I never want to find myself, my kids, my wife in. And so, you know, I don't want to apologize for having a, a dark episode, but, you know, maybe to, to leave it on this note, like, when I say I'll bet all day long on human ingenuity and progress, I mean, the human journey has been one of volatility, absolutely. But it's it's also been one of improving life um, life conditions. And when we get knocked down, like we swing back, we get back up and we will always get back up. And I know that I get back up. And so if I, I know that if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to keep fighting for a better life for my immediate family, once again, I'm not unique. I'm not a first mover. There's a wave of people just like me who are going to do the exact same thing. And no matter what happens, they'll get up and fight for a better life for them and their family. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave it at that. John, I, I really appreciate your time, brother. It's been great chatting with you tonight. And uh, love to do this again soon, man. Absolutely. Thanks for your time, Jay. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.